Welcome to the Perfectly Flawed podcast. On this podcast, I am your host, Renee Fox, and I chat to various people who are willing to be open and vulnerable about their own experiences with mental health and sport. Please keep in mind that the things discussed on this podcast are people's own experiences and is not medical advice. If anything in these episodes is triggering for you or you feel like you need assistance, please contact a health professional or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Perfectly Flawed podcast. In this episode, I am joined by the Ali Cole. I know, I hope you guys are just as excited as I am. Ali is a four-time Paralympic swimmer. She had a tough start to life with her cancer diagnosis leading to her leg being amputated. She has a wealth of knowledge, particularly being part of the Australian team, for half of her life. She opens up about being the best in the world when her first panic attack hit. Ellie shares her journey with mental health and the strategies she has learned along the way. Ellie is determined to make an impact on para-athletes for future generations. She loves to talk and it made chatting with her so easy and it was so good getting to know her. I'm honoured that I had the opportunity to chat with her and I'm so excited to share this with you and I really hope you guys enjoy it too. Welcome to the Perfectly Flawed podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. For those that don't know you, which I'm sure most do, would you like to give a bit of an overview about yourself? Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are. Um, (laughs) My name is Ellie Cole. I'm a Paralympic swimmer. I'm very proud to be a Paralympian. I'm almost 30 and I've, I've been on the swim team for most of my life. We're heading into Tokyo very soon, very shortly, which I'm a little nervous about. But um, after that, it's like the whole world is my oyster. So I'm pretty excited um, to try and explore different areas of my life. But up until now, I've basically just been a swimmer um, and I really enjoy what I do. And I feel like I've, I've gained a lot of experience, life experience from being an elite athlete so hopefully we get to delve into a little bit of that today and someone can take something from it (laughs) I'm sure they can absolutely so you've been in swimming most of your life how did you fall into swimming I started swimming when I was three just lessons most most Australians do their learn to swim and um I started mine eight weeks after I had my leg amputated from cancer. So it was a a bit of a dramatic start to my learn to swim. And it was just a sport that I fell in love with because having one leg as a child, I couldn't, I wasn't as fast as most of my friends at running, you know, and I wasn't as quick around the basketball court. And swimming was just one of those things where I was exactly the same as everybody else. And so, yeah, I started when I was three and then went through the learn to swim program. And I found myself on my first Australian swim team at the age of 14. So the fun fact about me is, yeah, I've been on the Australian swim team now for more than half of my life. And so I've I've got a very strong identity when it comes to being a swimmer, but also appreciate that there are so many other areas of a personality in life that can be explored too. I would love to ask you more about that sort of identity. I think a lot of people, particularly myself, associate my identity with my sport. And I think during lockdown, that thought was definitely challenged. How do you go with that? Yeah, it is definitely, it can be challenged. And I think a lot of oh, a lot of people um, ride their self-worth based on what their identity is. 
And so for me, like if I wasn't doing too well in my sport, I found myself very sad about it more than I probably should have been because I'd invested so much of my life into being an athlete. And I think as I got a little older and a bit more experienced in swimming and, you know, started going to university, I realized how important it was to um, not just be that one person and to go after other hobbies and other interests. And so, you know, having a very strong identity is, I think, very important, but I think writing all of your self-value on that identity can be very dangerous. Yeah, I agree. And it's such a hard concept to wrap your head around, I think. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I think it's completely natural for a human to question who they are. I don't think anybody really has a complete idea of who they are at any given time. It's ever-changing and it's not exactly something that's linear Um, you know you can go through months where you feel very sure of yourself and then before you know it like a life experience or a difficult life experience can completely shake that up so I guess that's just one of the joys of being a human and one of the (laughs) joys of living it's really hard and no one really tells you that when you're a kid no definitely not I think that's a bit of um thrown in the deep end for sure Yeah, I just, I remember like being a young girl and just thinking that everyone, you know, everyone that was an adult was really happy, knew exactly who they were, kind of had their shit together. And then as I went into adulthood myself, I was like, oh no, that's not the case. (laughs) That is not the case at all. Um, So that's definitely something that I think, yeah, threw me a number, but it's been really interesting just to sit back and reflect on everything. Yeah, I can imagine it would be. I imagine also being on the swim team for such a long period of time now, you have been thrown your fair share of hard sets. What are they like and how do you get through them? Oh, yes. (laughs) The joys of being a swimmer. There's nothing like uh, pushing your body to the limit, but holding your breath at the same time. I think when I was young, I I kind of learned how to deal with difficult sets. Like they just became part and parcel and they're a little bit of a, a habit. It's kind of like brushing your teeth, getting into the pool and, and working hard. It's just what you do in the day when you're an elite athlete. Yeah, there can be some really hard times where you have like, you're in a really heavy training block and you have a hard session upon a hard session and your body feels like it's giving up and you have to get back in that afternoon and swim hard again. And yeah, it can get hard. I think in sport, when you look at the Olympics, everyone's like physically capable, but it's like the mental side of things that can really differentiate between a gold medalist and someone who doesn't win a gold medal. And it's the same thing in in training. You know, one day you might be physically feeling really great. And then as soon as that physical stuff starts breaking down, then it really becomes a mental game. I think for me, when it comes to going through hard training blocks, consistency is really important. So for me, it's just about getting into a routine. Like I said, it's like brushing my teeth. When my alarm goes off, I just get straight out of bed and I just go to the pool and it's like, I almost don't even think about it. It's the same kind of thing with hard sets. Like the more that I do them and, and the more consistent I am with them, it just becomes part of like an everyday routine. But look, gosh, when you're in the middle of it, sometimes you just don't. I actually, I had a set yesterday morning. I was like, I can't finish this. I can't finish this. And I just kept thinking to myself, I can't finish this. But I don't know. I just tell myself that the pain's not going to last forever. And it doesn't like as soon as you touch the wall, it stops. Like as soon as you touch the wall, it stops. And so I just keep telling myself that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think what I've learned through interviewing different people is that 
it is very much a mental game and people are starting to talk about that more and more. And I think that's a really important conversation to have and having that inner monologue and those phrases and those mottos that get you through. Yeah, I remember actually watching like this Grey's Anatomy episode <laughs> last year and um, one of the doctors on there said that when she's feeling really scared, she like stands in a Superman pose, like a well, superwoman pose, like hands on her hips, really strong. And I'm not joking. Sometimes when I'm struggling at training, like say if we're doing a few 50 repeat efforts um, and I'm really hurting, I will like put my hands on my hips at the end of the lane and like just take a deep breath in. And you like, I can't believe how much of a difference just doing that makes. It actually works. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen that same episode of Grey's. I've been binging it so much. And it's interesting. There is actually a lot of research behind that, standing in that pose, building your confidence. You should try it. It's un- I can't believe the difference that it makes. But yeah, just ha- kind of having that, even when your mind's not feeling confident, just trying to get your body to like show confidence really can change things quite quickly. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's definitely something that I need to test out for myself. Yeah, so get in the pool tonight and swim 10 laps as hard as you can (laughs) and try that pose. It'll blow you away. Yeah. You talk about how, like, the mental game, how do you think you have gone about that and how do you think that's evolved throughout your career? Um, It it was interesting, like, when I I reflect on my 16, 17 years on the team, up until the age of about 20, I honestly felt like I was invincible. I was so excited to be on the team. It was a real honor and it still is. But being on the team now is just like everyday monotony. It's quite normal for me now. But when I was younger, you know, I had my superheroes that I looked up to and I just wanted to be an Australian swim team member, an Australian dolphin. And it's kind of like I had that really big goal and I didn't even think about like self-doubt or anything. And it wasn't until around about the Rio games in 2016. So I would have been 24 or 25 where I started experiencing like a lot of self-doubt about my ability. And actually before my hundred meter backstroke final at the Rio games, um, I had, hadn't been beaten in four years. I was a world record holder, defending champion from the London games. And right before that race, I locked myself in a toilet cubicle and had like a panic attack because I didn't feel like I was good enough. And I don't know, I think back to that, like that five minutes and I just couldn't believe that like all of the facts were there on the paper that I was a great swimmer and I I was still beating myself up that I wasn't. And so since I had that experience, like I've, I've looked at a lot of other elite athletes and no one was talking about mental health back then um, or confidence back then. And the conversation is becoming more normalized, but yeah, in the last four years, I've really noticed a lot of athletes opening up about very similar experiences. Like they're the best in the world. They have been for years and they're still feeling like they're not good enough. And so for me to understand that feeling that way is normal, it's really helped me accept it. Like it's, I, I, didn't, I don't think that there's something wrong with me anymore. Yeah. And I can imagine that being scary as well, not knowing. I mean, I've had a few panic attacks as well. And it's scary, that overwhelming feeling. and it's just awful. Yeah, it really is. It really is awful. Yeah. I think knowing that other people experience it as well. And it's interesting. Like if I'm speaking to a friend now and she 
is she or he is is going down the conversations going down the path of them talking about their mental health like I try and show my body language that I'm really open to talking to them about it because I know talking about it helps a lot yeah absolutely I couldn't agree more Mm. I would love to know what you did after that race like from that panic attack how did you then go about things like did you change anything did you speak to anyone what was the process after that well that was my very first panic attack that I've ever had and so it was like the worst timing (laughs) 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 because I didn't know what was happening I honestly didn't know what was happening to me I thought I was dying because I couldn't breathe all of a sudden and so I realized that I was having a lot of negative thoughts Um, I think it was very obvious to me because I'd never really had negative thoughts before. I was like, why am I thinking this way? And so I, I just had to tell myself, like, you're the world record holder. <laughs> you haven't been beaten. Like, you're obviously a good swimmer. I don't know why you're thinking. Like, it's like I was speaking to somebody else, honestly. And I remember I took a deep breath and I just said to myself, like, what if this works out? Like, what are you scared about? Like, what if this works out for you? And that kind of was enough for me to get out and race and I actually won the event so I really don't know what I was too worried about but then I realized when I got home yeah I was putting all of my self-worth on being a swimmer and so over the last three or four years I've really like explored that idea of why I felt that way you know why humans feel that way and it's been interesting so that's why I was really that's why I was really keen to come onto this podcast today and speak about that my experiences over the last few years, because um, I feel like the conversation needs to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you are talking to me today and we can delve into that further. How have you gone about it over the last few years? What have you discovered? Have you picked up any strategies that you can apply? Well, I didn't cope very well with it, to be honest, when I got home from Rio. And it wasn't until probably two years after Rio that I had another panic attack and it just came out of nowhere I was in an MRI I was actually on a on a way my way to a swimming camp with Kate and Bronte Campbell and we stopped by a friend's house on the way for lunch and um, I have like blood sugar attacks where my blood sugar drops really low and so I had a blood sugar attack at this lunch and so Kate had to drop me off at AIS <laughs> Um, where I stayed there and I got a blood test and my blood sugar was stupidly low. And so the doctor didn't wanted to understand why this was happening. And so he, he ordered me an MRI the next morning and I didn't realize that I have a complete fear of MRI machines (laughs) until I was in one. And so I was laying there and I was like, I don't feel very well and I couldn't breathe. And then my vision started shaking and when I, you're in an MRI machine and your body feels like it's like flight or fight response to the max, I was feeling terrible. And so they took me out of the MRI machine and it, I like the stress of being in the MRI machine actually triggered my very first migraine. This is a really interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had a migraine before, but that migraine didn't go away for six months. And I remember like, this is only two years, probably two years ago. Any like bright lights would make me feel nauseous. Any sounds would make me feel nauseous. And any time that I felt uncomfortable, like my body was out of its comfort zone, its immediate um, reaction was to go back into like a flight or fight response, which was like a panic attack. And so every time I went 
like listen to loud music, I would start panicking. Every time I saw bright lights, like fluorescent lights, my body would start panicking. And I was like, what the hell is going on with me? I couldn't, I couldn't understand like why all of a sudden I was like scared of everything. <laughs> and, um, I went and saw a sports psychologist and like, there is something seriously wrong. Like I am feeling so anxious all the time. I can't breathe. Like I can't sleep. I can't eat. And I lost all of this. I lost like 10 kilograms in a few weeks because I, my body was just having a major freak out and I couldn't really understand what was happening. And I, every time my heart rate went up in training, I would have, my body would start shaking, like trembling and it wouldn't stop for half an hour. And I started speaking to a sports psychologist about it. And she realized that anything that triggered pain for me, all of a sudden my body would go into a flight or fight response. And for an athlete, that was really difficult for me to get over because I couldn't do any of my main sets. I couldn't, I really couldn't be outside without my flight or fight response being triggered. And that in turn would make my migraines worse. And so it was like this ever never ending cycle. And so I knew I was in a lot of trouble. I couldn't believe people lived that way because I'd never had any anxiety before. I'd never had any mental health problems before. I've never had a panic attack before Rio. And all of a sudden, like, my whole life was like a six month panic attack, which is, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And I'm a very confident person as well. So like, I was really surprised that this was happening. I couldn't explain it, but um, I had to really get on top of like my stress triggers to try and stop this like never ending cycle. You know, I realized that I had been taking a lot of stress on in the lead up to, to the migraines happening. And um, I wasn't dealing with that stress very well. It was all subconscious. And so now for me, like I have to make sure that my schedule isn't too busy. I have to actually take time for myself, like get outside and sit in the sun, you know, um, spend time with friends rather than working every, like every minute of every day. So learning to say no to things was a really big, but putting myself first was the most important thing that I learned from that. And then on top of that, like learning how to regulate my breathing so meditating, I can't believe how much meditating has helped. I've was always thought that meditating was a bit voodoo, but I love it now. And whenever I'm stressed, I actually do it. But a big challenge for me was going to the world championships that year and still feeling this way. And my base level of anxiety was quite high. And then I added like a world championships on top of this. And so I remember being in the marshalling room and everyone was like shadow boxing and trying to get themselves pumped up. And I was like sitting in the corner meditating <laughs> and, you know, I've learned all about the, that, that curve of, of arousal or whatever it's called and learning to identify where I, where I sit on that curve, if I'm over aroused, or under aroused and learning how to, how to manage that. And so whether I need to bring myself down or bring myself back up again, it's been a really great self-awareness experience for me. Like when I was in it, I hated it. It was horrible. Um, but I've learned a lot from that experience and yeah, I think I'm doing pretty well now, but it was a very, very big learning experience. Yeah, yeah. That's so good to hear that you're doing better now. And it is overwhelming, especially when you've never experienced a panic attack before it's frightening and it's scary because there's that overwhelming feeling of not being able to breathe. And for me personally, I mean, I have a thing of not being able to breathe. And so I've really picked the wrong sport by picking swimming, but I know. Um, <laughs> 
Because all of a sudden when you can't, when your body needs oxygen and you're, you're already struggling to breathe, it can like trigger a panic attack. I almost had it yesterday, actually. I wasn't breathing out properly and I was like hyperventilating and it nearly triggered one, but I've got it under control. Yeah. But I think it's sort of self-awareness. Like you really have to have great self-awareness and that comes through a lot of practice, I think. Yeah, it's a really important skill to have. And I think what you said at the start too, I think being naive is kind of a superpower at the same time. I think it's also great being aware of what is going on, but I think being naive is also just as good at times as well. Yeah, I think it gets you through to a certain point. Um, And then you have to, like, for me, I really had to learn things the hard way. But now it's nice not being naive, having my eyes open and still knowing how to deal with things. But yeah, you look at, like, I look at the confidence of some of these kids that are coming through our our Olympic team and Paralympic team. And I'm a bit jealous. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, man, I wish I was like that again. It's just, it's really nice to see. And I, it's just, I always just wonder where we lose all of that. Like why we lose that along the way somewhere sometimes. Yeah. And I think the difference probably between you and them is that you have all this experience and you have all this knowledge of what things are like, whereas they're definitely diving into the unknown. Mm, Yeah. I think I've definitely learned a little bit about, you know, hard work or lack thereof you know, there are consequences and there are benefits to things. I think as you get more life experience and you do learn a bit more about consequences, of course, it's going to make you a bit more scared sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. You said that you had a lot of stress during that period of time. Do you think expectations plays a part in that internal or external? Yes, I think so. I definitely see it in like a lot of athletes. During that time for me, I think I had a lot of, I put a lot of expectation on myself because I was like the first Paralympic athlete to join an Olympic um, training program. And so I felt like, this is going to sound so stupid, but I kind of felt like if I couldn't keep up with Caden Bronte Campbell, then I I don't deserve to be in this program kind of thing. (laughs) And so for like months upon months, I was always like, not necessarily comparing my times or, or anything to them, but definitely my work ethic. Like I felt like I was never allowed to let the ball drop at any given moment. Um, And so when I was having bad days where I wasn't performing well, like, gosh, I beat myself up so much about it. And then on top of that, there were a lot of things in my personal life that were mounting up. Like, you know, I've got a few sponsors and not that there's much expectation on me with the sponsors, but it's more like, I have a lot, I I do a lot of like work with them and I always want to make sure that that work is nothing less than perfect. And so I was like chasing perfection in the pool. I was chasing perfection out of the pool and then everywhere else in my life, like in my relationship, I was chasing perfection with my family. I was, and then, yeah, I got to a point where I just realized I couldn't do it all (laughs) and nobody can. So um, I kind of let myself relax a little bit after my whole like six month giant migraine panic attack anxiety experience and um yeah I'm much much more gracious when it comes to perfection it doesn't (laughs) exist (laughs) yeah and it's hard and I think saying it out loud almost reduces what it sounds like in your mind sometimes like you said about how you didn't feel deserving if you didn't keep up with Kate and Bronte Campbell 
and it may sound crazy to say it out loud but in your head it makes perfect sense yeah it totally does we're so unreasonable aren't we yeah 100 percent. and we're our own worst critic but I don't think it's that crazy I think I know I'm hard on myself too and although I'm not necessarily I can imagine coming to that thought yeah definitely and like it's been really great seeing swimming Australia over the last few years because they used to be so performance focused and now we have our our, our well-being officers so we have um, Jody Henry and, and Lin, Lindley Frame and they work really closely with the athletes to make sure that like yeah our well-being is being talked about and I'm finding that like the athletes that are are on the team now um, are way more open to talking about their well-being and like just checking in with themselves a little bit because that's something I kind of never did um, up until two years ago I never really just checked in with how I was going and I didn't realize that like I was so stressed and so overworked until my body just my body literally gave out on me yeah and it's so important and I don't think I mean it's happening more and more in sport which I think is great and I think even outside of the sport, that conversation is happening a little bit more too. Yeah. Like it was interesting during COVID last year because all of a sudden, you know, all of the, like people were just writing stuff, like checking in on everyone's well-being. And it's like well-being was at the forefront of that because people knew that they were struggling and wanted to check in on everybody else as well. And it just created this like massive conversation around it. So it's like crappy as COVID was last year, it, it changed things in regards to social media, I think. Yeah, I agree. What kind of impact do you think social media has then? I think it can have really positive benefits and it can have really negative consequences as well. I guess it really depends on the individual. Like I know when we go away on teams, they, they encourage us to stay off social media but, you know, it's very easy to go down the rabbit hole of reading negative news, negative news all the time. And it has a massive impact on you, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. Like what you read on the news and what you expose yourself to all the time has a big impact. And we see people on their phones all the time and you don't know what information they're absorbing because it's what, whatever's on their screen is private to you. And so, yeah, you don't really know what they're reading, what they're consuming. And it could, I feel like um, social media news, they love negative conversations because that's their clickbait. And so most of the stuff that's on online is quite negative. And if you're already struggling or you're in a bad mindset, going online can make that a lot worse. And so, yeah, I think it's really important to once again, be self-aware and to understand how that can affect you. But the other problem is that being online can be quite addictive. And so to also be aware of that and um, I think just taking a bit of responsibility when it comes to using social media and each person needs to know how it affects them differently. Like for me, um, I really enjoy social media because a lot of the stuff that I have on my Instagram is like cute piggies or like puppies <laughs> or like my heroes and all of that. But I know that a lot of like, say, girls would follow, I don't, but a lot of girls would follow like fashion or models and God knows what they post. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's quite individual, but it can be very damaging. Yeah, I agree. And it definitely depends how it's used. And it's so easy to mindlessly scroll. Like you can be like, oh, shit, where did that last two hours go? Yeah. And I have this habit of like 
opening up my Instagram and refreshing it, but I don't actually like scroll through it again. It's like, I just did that refresh, um, habit, <laughs> but yeah, one of the things that triggers my migraines now is actually screens and like scrolling, like my eyes can't focus and it triggers migraines. And so I've had to really get off my phones. Like I'm, I'm fine talking on a laptop like this, but as soon as like the words start moving and scrolling, it can trigger a migraine. And so I've actually, I'm not on social media anywhere near as much as I used to be. And I'm actually a lot happier for it. Yeah. It's amazing what impact it has. Yeah, I agree. So you kind of said that the conversation and having the wellness team part of Swimming Australia now, do you still think that there's a stigma around mental health, particularly in sport? I know personally, Um, I've heard people say that being an athlete, you have to have this perception of being strong and being able to push through and not showing that you're weak because you're struggling. Do you think that stigma still exists? Yeah, definitely. Um, I see it even in our team. Maybe when I'm off the team, we can talk about (laughs) it a little bit more. But I I see the stigma and I don't think it's, I think management plays a really big part in, um, being able to have a conversation around mental health. It's not that our management team discourage us from talking about mental health. It's just that there are like a few people in sports management, not necessarily just our team, but like all across all sports who I find grew up, grew up in their own respective sports. And back then, like it wasn't spoken about at all. And so that's what they know. So I think you'll find that there will be quite a big generational shift in sports management And once this conversation starts happening more and more, you know, people growing up, it's just going to be second nature for them to talk about well-being in sport. But you've still got quite a lot of people that were from previous generations of sport that are still in the management teams and it wasn't spoken about back then. So, of course, they're not going to, it's not going to be front of mind for them. Like they're open to talking about it, but it's not like front of mind. Mm. Um, And as obviously, I don't want to be sexist, but um, we are seeing more women in leadership roles in sport. And generally that comes with a bit more compassion as well and understanding, you know, whether they're, they've gone through it themselves. And obviously we talk about our feelings more as females or whether they're parents. And so they've, they've had to obviously be quite compassionate being a parent, but that definitely translate and translates into sports management, obviously as well, female athletes are more comfortable speaking to female management about wellbeing. And so to have um, those three factors, coming through into sport and becoming a bit more prominent. I definitely think it's just going to keep getting better from here, which is good news. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it does. I think there's definitely, as you said, more conversation happening and particularly, as you said, without being sexist, females do tend to talk about their feelings a bit more openly than men. But I also think that's evolving too. I think there's a lot more men speaking up as well. Yeah, definitely. And like on my swim team, I'm one of the captains and it's so important for me to check in with the male swimmers and be open and like create that trust there so that they can talk about their feelings and know that I'm not going to go and tell all of their mates. And I can't believe since I've, I've made the active decision to do that, like how many of them are talking about their feelings and I never thought that they would. And so, yeah, they're being a bit more vulnerable, you know, being a guy and being vulnerable for some reason, they don't think can go hand in hand, but it really can. And if anything, showing that vulnerability, like creates such a stronger bond 
and then that in turn creates like a stronger team and that in turn creates a much better experience for everybody and that just all comes down to being vulnerable yeah and it's so interesting I spoke to um Kai Van Kool um the other week and his episode came out the other day and it was so interesting hearing him be so vulnerable about his experiences I had even more respect for him for being open and being vulnerable yeah that's what I mean I think showing your vulnerable side it's so hard because everyone's always so worried about being judged but when you're in like a team environment like what I'm in it's quite safe and so you feel more comfortable to be vulnerable like that's the thing that that really gets down like deep into someone's personality like it's not a shallow relationship then like you understand each other more you know someone's going through a bit more of a hard time there is so much more understanding there and then you feel like you want to help them more and like I said, it just creates such a better relationship and it can create such a better team as well. And you'll find that a lot of CEOs, not just in sport, but in any sector are being more vulnerable with their employees because they understand that that creates such a better business. And so I really enjoy seeing that evolving and that conversation happening too. Yeah, I think it's great. It's such a really important conversation. I hope that it it continues as well. How do you think Paralympic sport is viewed? And do you think there is enough awareness around it currently? I think there is enough awareness around Paralympic sport. It's evolved so much since I've joined. So I, I made my first Paralympic team in 2006 we had a different trials than the able, uh, we call them able bods than the Olympic team. You never would have seen like a Paralympian being sponsored by like a commercial sponsor or have any commercial sponsors at all, actually. And then um, when it came to televising Paralympic sport, they would schedule our events at the beginning of the event and then at the end of the event. And so they wouldn't televise our parts, but they would televise the whole middle middle chunk where where the Olympic guys were um, swimming. And so to be able to see like, you know, going to trials a few weeks ago, to be able to see like equal amount of para-athletes on, on the advertising, equal amount of Olympic athletes, our events all through the program, you know, uh, televised on Amazon Prime, just the same as everybody else. Like it blows my mind <laughs> because I knew that obviously I wanted that equality there from being young and it's still not exactly the same, but we feel so much more welcomed as a Paralympic cohort into Swimming Australia than we ever have before. And um, it's been really heartwarming to see. But, yeah, we're still a minority and minorities always, well, I think are always going to be treated a little differently. But in terms of, like, public perception, like, we're seeing this whole new view of how the public perceive us that is incredible like people are looking at para athletes like they're some kind of superhero (laughs) and I remember looking at like looking up to my Olympic role models when I was younger and thinking that they were superheroes and I think about like the next generation of kids that are coming through if they can see someone with a disability or somebody who's different as still being like a champion and still being a superhero then that's gonna like definitely change the world because there's, that's going to completely remove the whole stigma around disability that disability has suffered since the beginning of time. And like, this can happen in the next few years. Like that never happens. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I think it's just absolutely incredible. Um, 
and it's been really wonderful to be involved in that and to also like just sit back and, and watch it happen and it hasn't just happened on its own but um yeah it's been really cool yeah it's amazing how far it's come who are some of your role models and is it weird to think that you're that person for someone else now yeah it is weird to think that my role models these days are usually like women who are still like slaying the patriarchy and so if you think along the likes of um I have like uh like for example Julie Bishop is my ultimate role model because for her to work in a cabinet that was full of men and for her to be able to walk into a room full of men and still like not demand the respect but to actually have the respect I find women like that incredible our CEO of Swimming Australia six months ago Lee Russell is another one of my role models she was an incredible CEO, uh, Raylene Castle, CEO of, of rugby in Australia up until recently. Pretty much any wo- woman that's in a leadership role and, and is changing the norms is my ultimate superhero. But when I was younger, like it was, of course, like Susie O'Neill and Patria Thomas because I really admired their work ethic. But I'm really enjoying watching women in leadership roles recently. Like it's just making me so proud. I feel like Helen Reddy. I want to sing that I Am Woman song over and over again. (laughs) But it's making me really like proud of who I am. And I think it's good to be proud of who you are. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really good. And it is, it's amazing to see how far we've come and having so many women in powerful leadership roles and being able to captivate people's attention and say, look, I'm here, I'm a woman and I can do just as much as anybody else. Yeah. And I think probably the reason why I really look up to those women as role models is because I was always like when I was a kid perceived as being so incapable because I was missing a leg. Like people would speak to me slowly because they thought that because I was missing a leg, I had like a brain injury that accompanied it or something, but I was always treated so differently and kind of put off to the side. And so now whenever I see like like uh, someone who is a minority and who is challenging that and like saying I'm here I'm I can make a difference and having that like actually they don't really have the self-belief I've listened to a lot of podcasts they have imposter syndrome still (laughs) but to go for it anyway even though they they have that imposter syndrome it's like ah if everyone could do that it would be like incredible so I, I draw a lot of similarities I think from them yeah I still remember you came to my school ages ago this is like going years back now and I remember you telling me this story you in like early high school and in drama and someone mocked you for your leg and so you took it off and threw it at them yeah I did that (laughs) (laughs) I think it was because I wasn't accepting that standard (laughs) (laughs) yeah I still don't know why I did I didn't know how to handle my emotions when I was 12 and so I obviously just resorted straight to violence but I would, I would definitely approach that situation very differently. But I kind of, even from that age, I kind of knew where, where the line was, like what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable. And for, for someone to tease me about having a disability, like, and treating me differently because of that, like that wasn't acceptable for me at 12. I didn't deal with it the best way, but I'm bloody proud that I stood up for myself still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember thinking, I remember you telling me that story. I'm like, that is such a great response. Like, obviously, violence is not the answer, but it's so great that you were able to do that. Yeah, I don't think he'll ever forget that. I, 
if I had someone throw a limb at me, I wouldn't either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not necessarily a standard response, that's for sure. Mm, No, too good. What do you think has been one of your biggest challenges or setbacks? I think the experience that I had two years ago was really challenging. For me mentally, that was very tough because it kind of made me question everything and I didn't have any of the answers. And so that was hard. I'd say that was my biggest challenge. And then physically for me, breaking my hip last year wasn't probably a highlight of my life. I think COVID last year was really, really tough because everything got postponed, everything that we trained for had moved. I felt like I couldn't complain about it because everyone was going through a crappy time. And so it was one of those um, situations where I felt like the only person I was comfortable talking about it to was other athletes because I felt like they were the only ones that understood what we were going through. And I I didn't really want to complain about it because it wasn't fair on anybody else. And then, yeah, having a broken hip in that as well was just the worst because I was so broken emotionally and I was literally physically broken as well. It's like I had to decide whether... I loved swimming enough to do an extra year to get through my rehab for my hip. But the silver lining on the other side of that was going through all these difficult experiences made me realize how much I love swimming. And now like coming out of COVID and having to like starting to train again, I have such a different outlook on training than I did before COVID hit. It's like, it's a real opportunity and not everybody in the world is able to train like this. And it's like every time I get into the pool, I just appreciate it. And I never did that before. Like I always just took it for granted. And I think a lot of people realized last year that they took a lot for granted. And it's amazing when the whole world changes and you don't see it coming. And people always say, you don't know that you're in the good old days until you're in the good old days. And COVID for me made me realize that I was currently in the good old days (laughs) and to appreciate it a bit more. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think it's a situation where you don't realize what you have until it's gone. Mm. Yeah. And so for me, like we had, we've gotten it back temporarily, like in terms of training and the ability to represent our country. And because that was the rug was pulled from under us and that was almost taken away as hard as it was like, yeah, it's it's been really eye-opening. Yeah, I can imagine it would be. How did you manage to break your hip? <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was so embarrassing. It wasn't even it's not even a good story. I um I was just walking down a slippery driveway to go to this cafe and it was a rainy day and my left foot, my good foot, like slipped forward down this driveway. And so I landed like I was kind of proposing on my like if you imagine someone proposing, like that's how I landed on my right knee and um, my right knee is my prosthetic side. And so the shock of like landing on my knee, it was not even a big fall. It was like literally, like it was so tiny, but all of this like shock went up through my prosthetic leg socket and it like kind of exploded my bone from the inside. And I remember I felt this like overwhelming sense of wanting to throw up and I was like, what, 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 like, why do I feel like this? And I went to get up and walk and it really hurt. And I, I ordered myself a coffee and then I just burst into tears because I was in so much pain and I was stressing because I was on my way to um, speak at a school actually. And I was like, oh gosh, I got to go to hospital. 
but the x-ray because my bone had like broken from the inside hadn't quite broken all the way through the x-ray came up clear and so I spent like the next three days being like in horrific pain and then I got an MRI and they're like no your bone is broken in like three spots (laughs) and I was like oh gosh I've got like Tokyo this year and then everything happened and Tokyo got postponed um which was lucky in a way um, so everyone was crying when Tokyo got postponed and I was like, yes, I can get my hip better in time. But yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a big fall at all. It was so tiny. It was just yeah. hitting the bone. I think it was just hitting the bone in that wrong spot. Have yeah. you had many injuries before and how, I think, I mean, I'm injured at the moment. I think people underestimate the mental toll that injuries take. How have you gone about it? Um, yeah, I've had a few. I broke my hip last year, like I said, and I broke my foot three years ago and then I had two shoulder reconstructions after London but having a shoulder injury or any kind of injury and trying to play through sport is really hard um I remember when my shoulders were uh starting to hurt before I had my shoulders reconstructed I was in pain for about a year before I had them operated on and it's really hard when you are doing something that you love, but it's causing you a lot of physical pain as well. I think that's what causes such an emotional toll. And especially when I identified so much as being a swimmer, I think for me, I'm much more aware, it's self-awareness again, <laughs> of um, when things are starting to get a bit tired and a bit injured. Like last week, I felt a shoulder injury starting to come up and I kind of had to tell myself like it's okay if you don't do your main set today like you need to make sure that you get your shoulder better and um, having a bit more compassion when it comes to your body before the injury actually turns into something worse I remember growing up in swimming and if you had an injury and you didn't swim through it you pretty much got kicked out of the squad and so it was almost like this fear of being injured and when you were injured you were so scared to speak about it to your coach because you were going to get into trouble as I've gotten a bit older and knowing that I'm injured, it's kind of like sticking up for yourself. You say to your coach, like, oh, I don't think I should be doing this set today. And if they say like, no, 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 you have to do it. You have to say no. Like you have to learn to say no and stand up for yourself. I haven't gotten any shoulder injuries like I used to, but when it comes to breaking bones, like that's a little bit out of my control, but it's for me, I still got in the water and, and just did what I could do. But I think when it comes to accepting injuries, you have to have an enormous amount of compassion for yourself and to know that it will get better if you take care of yourself. Yeah, 100%. And I think the biggest thing that I've struggled with is, as you said, you kind of, it's hard knowing that something that you love is causing you so much pain and trying to push your body to still get out of the set what you want, but not pushing your body to the point where it's causing more damage or more pain. Yeah. And it's it's definitely that fine line. So I think like if you're in a situation like that, obviously getting a lot of professional advice from physiotherapists or surgeons is really important. Um, But yeah, it can really, like everybody does get injured and it's interesting how different people experience, have very different experiences. But for me now I know like injuries kind of come and go it's really important to address it as soon as you can and take care of yourself as soon as you can. It's really hard to take a step back sometimes, but you'll get better a lot quicker if you do that. Yeah. <laughs> of dra- yeah. It's kind of like what's happening with the, okay. I don't, I don't want to sledge on Gladys right now, but <laughs> it's kind of like what's happening with the virus. You know, if you let it go for a little bit too long, all of a sudden you're in a 10 week lockdown when it could have been a two week lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> 
Absolutely. What do you think is one of your biggest achievements so far? Oh, that's really hard. Oh, I think I don't really want to make it about sport because I'm trying not to be such an athlete. (laughs) I think one of my biggest achievements so far, oh, I reckon, okay, I reckon that one of my biggest achievements so far, it's not necessarily like a singular event, but I think one of my biggest achievements so far is like pushing myself so hard for so many years for a cause that I didn't even know if it would eventuate for anything, that cause being the Paralympic movement. I'm really proud that I've like stuck out and trained for like 16 years and worked so hard and tried to raise the bar as high as I can so that lots of para kids coming through know that they're just as good as like their Olympic, well, their able-bod friends in swimming and, and know that they can be like a Paralympic athlete when they're older and that in turn can change the world. And so for me, like I'm just, my biggest achievement is genuinely just being a Paralympic athlete. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah, um, because I feel like that is so much bigger and that whole movement is so much bigger than like a race or like a medal because it's a movement, you know. Yeah, Mm. influencing other people. Yeah, I think that's my biggest achievement. And even also having that in the back of my mind is knowing that's my biggest achievement. It takes the pressure off me a lot when it comes to like racing in Tokyo and stuff because like I'm going to want to get really great um, results in Tokyo. Like I really want to (laughs) win. But at the end of the day, like knowing that the Paralympic movement is still there, regardless of if I win or not, it's still something to be really stoked about. Yeah, absolutely. What are your goals going into Tokyo? How are you feeling about it? What kind of preparation um, are you sort of going into? It's like we, it's really hard to know what it's going to be like. Nobody does. Uh, I think having the Olympics first is going to be great because the Paralympic athletes get to watch how Japan deals with, um, you know, the, the virus, how they deal with like social distancing, how, like what happens if someone gets the virus, um, all of those contingencies will already be in place when we get there. And so that's given me a bit more comfort um, around the competition. It's really hard to know what that's going to be like. I don't think we're even going to be able to warm up for our events when we want to. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to swim down. And so I don't know. It's just going to a whole world of unknown, which is kind of difficult to have goals around what we want out of the games. And so for me, I think my goal would probably be just to make sure that I'm doing everything that I can right. (laughs) And like that's going for that perfectionist floor that I was talking about before. But at the same time, like we're going to have a lot of what we're used to taken away from us. And so I really want to make sure that I try and keep that anxiety low. Actually, that is a good goal. Keep my anxiety low and make sure that, yeah, I can find other ways around warming up or other ways around doing what I need to do. Yeah, honestly, I have no idea how it's going to go, (laughs) which is not great for someone who has anxiety. (laughs) Uh, It'll be fine. Everyone's in it together, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So do you think sport, the way it's impacted your life has changed? Yes, definitely. I first few games, first two games. So Tokyo will be my fourth games. Um, The first two games that I went to, Beijing and London, all I cared about was winning. And I thought that like, that is all that mattered. And 
I was very lucky that I won in London because that's kind of what I was training for. But um, now the impact that sport has is really different because I, like I mentioned to you before, that movement has become the idea of the whole movement and what it actually is doing for the world and for like the next generation is much more important. And so for me, like whenever I go away with the Paralympic team now, it's not just all about winning for me. It's like about learning about the other athletes, um, building those relationships with the other athletes, like experiencing everything outside of the sport a little bit more. And I'm finding because I'm not so like laser focused on, on winning all the time. Of course, it is a focus of mine, but I'm exploring like all of the other great things that being an athlete has to offer. I'm so much more like satisfied with being an athlete. It's, um, it's like quite a profound feeling. It's the best job in the world. And I, I honestly do really think that we're making a real impact on the world. Like I really love being a para-athlete. You've probably gotten that from this conversation today, but it's like, <laughs> I'm so blessed to be able to be a para-athlete. It was actually funny. I was talking to um, Jess Fox the other day. Do you know who Jess Fox is? She's a kite. Yeah. Yes. I was talking to her the other day because um, uh, Vanity Fair released a uh, magazine cover this month of a BB Vio or whatever her name is. She's an Italian Paralympic fencer and she's got no arms and no legs. And on the front of this magazine cover is her like under the water and she's got her cool robot arms and she's got her cool like robot legs. And Jess is like, this cover is incredible. And I was like, I know she looks so badass, like with her robot limbs and stuff. And I was like, I wish I had no arms and no legs. And then I said to her, I was like, why was I born with arms? Why? <laughs> and Jess is like, wow. Like I've never heard anyone say that before, but it's true. Like people are like realizing that it's not such a big deal if you lose your limbs anymore. Like it's kind of cool, I think. And it's just completely like changed my whole perception on it. Like I, I was being, I was being serious when I said to her that she looks really cool with her arms and legs like that. Um, it's really great. And she's done great things with the sport. And if you had no arms and no legs, say in like the 1850s, it would have been a very different life. So I'm hundred percent. Very yeah. different. Yeah. Do you think to taking on a different mindset leading into the most recent games that you perform better when there's less focus on the outcome of your result, like of the outcome of how the race is going to go? Uh, yeah, I could not agree with that statement anymore. <laughs> like 110% um, if you're not focused on the outcome. Like we've seen athletes before who are focusing on the outcome and you can tell who they are before they even get on the blocks because they're deer in the headlights. Um, we spend hours upon hours upon hours in training, working on our technique. Um, you know, it's, that's all process driven. We're not thinking about like what times we're swimming for each lap. We're literally in our body in that moment thinking about our technique, thinking about our skills. Um, and then all of a sudden when we get to a race, for some reason, we don't think about that at all. Like <laughs> we just think about the end result. And that puts so much pressure on you because you're not like you're thinking of the destination, but you're not actually thinking of how you're going to get there and how you're going to get there are the things that you can control. And it was really interesting. Like I was talking to um, James Magnuson last week and he was saying that when he used to race his 100 meter freestyle, he would always think about his start, his turn and his finish 
he would never think about like the end. And he's like, if I can control those three things in my race and like do them really well, then the result will just take care of itself. Like it's always going to be a good race if I can get those three things done well. And I was like, man, I love that. So um, that's very much process driven swimming. And uh, I find most athletes that, that are those process driven swimmers, they do their race on autopilot. They don't even remember it. Um, because they just have so much control over what they're doing. It's really phenomenal to watch. Um, but like I said, I love watching the Olympics because that's such a mental game. Like you can see who's showing up on the day, who's thinking about their processes, and it's completely natural for you to try and be process-driven, but your mind still pings over to the results. Like that's totally normal. But, yeah, just bringing yourself back in again. And that's a practice thing as well. It's all practice. Everything, life's a big practice. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting. Like obviously everyone wants to win and I don't think you would be an athlete if you didn't want to win, but thinking about those things that you can control. Yes. I'm going to nail my start. I'm going to nail that turn. I'm going to nail the finish. And I was speaking to someone the other day that some of the best races that they've done, they said was they don't really remember anything from the race. Oh yeah. I've had that few of those, not many, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it's so true. Like it was actually really interesting in Rio. I did a process driven race, 400 meter freestyle. I led for like 399 meters of the race. I was winning. I was so stoked with myself. I got touched out by 0.02 in a 400 meter race. (laughs) It was actually not that funny, but um, I remember like being so proud of myself because I had done everything that I could. Like I thought I'd done everything quite well. And then I got out of the pool and my whole team were like, somber about it they were apologizing and were like I'm so sorry like that sucks and I was like are you serious I got second like (laughs) I I I did a pb like I couldn't have done anything more and it's that I found that experience really interesting because it was kind of like what my own expectation of success was was so different to what everybody else's was and at the end of the day, if you've done everything that you can, you've done, you thought you've done everything well and someone else has won, like it's, that's not your problem, you know? <laughs> um, and I find when it comes to the Olympics and the Paralympics, the media puts so much expectation on the result. But if you're happy with the process that you've done, then they can get lost, you know? Yeah. It's amazing that you're able to take on that mindset. I definitely have not figured that out yet. Something that I need to learn and I need to <laughs> learn it soon because I've had a similar situation where I was touched out and I was devastated. And my coach is like, why? You did everything right. You did swim a perfect race from what we've done in training. Why are you disappointed? I'm like, but the result is not what I wanted. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if that person wasn't there and racing you, then you would have won. And that doesn't really change anything about what your performance actually was. Mm. So that your idea of success is based completely on somebody else. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I always think like if that person wasn't there, I would have won, but that makes absolutely no difference to what my performance actually was. Yeah. I definitely need to take that on board. Yeah. Oh, it's not an easy thing to do. Like, of course, sometimes you're going to feel disappointed, but yeah, feeling disappointed is, is very common, like very normal, but sometimes you need to take that step back and realize, yeah. I don't know. It's just your performance at the end of the day. Like what could you have done better? Not what that person could have done worse. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. So to finish with, I like to do three questions. 
the first thing is, I mean, we've kind of touched on it. What is something that you're most proud of about yourself? And it doesn't have to be swimming related. I'm really proud that like, even if I am disappointed, I don't hold on to it for very long. Mm. It's more like, I'm really good at finding like positive things in really crappy situations. <laughs> I find that's like one of my best character traits. And I was actually talking about it with Bronte a couple of months ago because like we were going through some pretty hard times and she's like, God, stop being so positive. And I was like, it's <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's my coping strategy and it's working for everybody. It's not doing yeah. damage to anyone. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. The second question is, what is your favorite quote and or even both the best piece of advice that you've been given? My favorite quote is, and actually it probably goes hand in hand. My favorite quote is, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And I like that quote because it's really getting you to take ownership of what you're doing and to also be creative about what you're doing. There's nothing I find more frustrating than seeing an athlete who isn't performing well and going back and always doing the same stuff and not trying to find a solution. Um, I'm very much like a trial and error swimmer. Like I'm happy to try new things, but if it doesn't work, then go move on to the next thing kind of thing. Um, and yeah, sometimes I see athletes that aren't performing well and they just go back and do the same thing and they like just hope that it's going to be get better and they don't take ownership over what they're doing. And it's just like what, it's just like banging your head against the wall. Um, and so that's my favorite quote. Yeah, it's definitely a good one. The last question is, do you have any tips for those that are listening? Probably what I just said around that quote. I think it's really important to explore as many different options as you can with what you're doing. For me, like knowing that I nearly died when I was three, I think even though I didn't understand it at the time, but reflecting on it, it's a big wake up call to like, you can't just do the same stuff all the time. Like you've got to go out there, you've got to experience it. I really like people who try new things that have never been done before. And I think Paralympic sport um, has been a really great platform for that idea and that mindset. And to be able to do that, I think you need to be a little bit crazy, but I think being creative with what you're doing and my, the thing that I hate people saying the most is that this is the way it's always been done. Um, I think that innovation and creativity are really important. And so if you can find ways or areas in your life where you can be creative or innovative and try and get people on board with you, it's going to create some really cool stuff. So go for it. Such great advice. Mm, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been so great listening to you and hearing your experiences. It's a really great opportunity for me personally. And hopefully um, I'm sure there's many other people that will get a lot out of listening to this chat too. Oh, I hope so. I think, yeah, this podcast is really great. And I know that the people in particular that are listening um, probably need to draw from a lot of other people's life experiences just to help them understand their own a bit more. And so, yeah, for anyone who is willing to um, chat about their experiences, I think is really great. So to have this podcast, very well done. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Perfectly Flawed Podcast. If you would like to stay up to date for when the next episode is being released, you can follow myself on Instagram at Renee Fox, or you can follow the podcast at perfectly underscore flawed underscore podcast. I'll chat to you next time. Bye.